Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, today's episode of Other People is brought to you by Tweaked Audio. Do you need some new earbuds? Do you need some new headphones? Go to tweakedaudio.com, get 33% off of any purchase when you enter the promo code other people, O T H E R P P L, O T H E R P P L, tweakedaudio.com. Get some earbuds, get some headphones, different shapes, different styles, different sizes, different colors. Tweakedaudio.com. These are earbuds, these are headphones. You can listen to things with them. Go and get some. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. Everybody, here we right. go again. This is it. This is other people. This is functionally literate. This is something you can do while in the fetal position. How's it going? I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. How are you feeling out there? What's happening? I have a space heater. I want to let you know that I have a space heater. It's been freezing in the garage for the past four to six weeks. I've been complaining about it relentlessly, and I finally did something about it. I have a space heater. It's plugged in. It's blowing hot air on me right now. Can you hear it? It's a very faint whir. A whirring noise. I'm very pleased about this. My guest today is Ruth Warner. Her new memoir, The Sound of Gravel, is available now from Flatiron Books. Uh, the Sound of Gravel is the official January pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. For those of you who are uh, unaware, the NervousBreakdown.com is my online culture magazine and literary community. It has its own monthly book club, which you can sign up for. I encourage you to do that. Go to the NervousBreakdown.com and click on Book Club in the menu bar for more information. Get a brand new book delivered to your door every 30 days for less than the cost of a book. So, uh, The Sound of Gravel, where to begin with this book? It is one of the most harrowing stories I can remember reading, certainly in recent memory. And, uh, you know, lately with my life being what it is, I, I just, I've taken on, I feel like I've taken on too much to be able to manage uh, certain aspects of my life, one of which is reading. Not that I don't read, but just to, to get through the amount of reading that I feel uh, you know, uh, to get through the amount of reading that I wish I could get through is just, you know, it's impossible. I'm sleep deprived. I'm overscheduled. I have a book in my hands. I start nodding off like a heroin junkie just to fall right asleep. So, uh, when I talk to people on this program, 
like as I've said many times in the past, sometimes I've uh, I've read, sometimes I've you know tried to skim and get an idea. Sometimes I get caught. And when somebody's written fiction, it's not typically a huge deal because the the basis of this show or the crux of this show is biography and craft. I talk to writers about their lives. I talk to you know them about who they are, weird stories from their childhood. I talk to them about how they do the work, why they do the work, and so on and so forth. But when I'm talking to somebody who's written a memoir, and when I'm talking to somebody who is a, a, a Nervous Breakdown book club pick, uh, but especially the nonfiction aspect, I, I tend to like to have an idea of what I'm getting into because I don't want to tread uh, over territory in the conversation that is... Uh, you know, discussed at length in the book. It just feels like there's a tension there that I need to resolve by being uh, prepared. So uh, I really wanted, and, and besides, you know, having read the, uh, you know, the jacket copy and uh, a little bit about this book online, I really wanted to read The Sound of Gravel uh, with like, uh, you know, in a very earnest way. Like I was like, okay, this is right up my alley about, you know, about a childhood uh, in Mexico in a uh, polygamist, fundamentalist, Mormon sect. So, uh, you know, I have this uh, interview with Ruth coming up. And I'm like 48 hours away. And I'm looking at the book. And I'm thinking, you know what? I mean, it's just crazy. Like, uh, I'm not going to be able to do this. I, if I, The only time I could possibly read is at night. And the only possible way at night that I could possibly read is if I start, like, shooting espresso which is going to keep me up. And then the baby's going to get up at like three or four in the morning. It's just, it's, you know, it started to become unworkable. And so I'm complaining about this to my wife. And, uh, you know, she says, why don't you get the audio book? This is sort of like the space heater. You know, this is something I should have thought of a long time ago on my own, but for some reason it took, you know, other people to, uh, kind of nudge me. She's like, just get the audio book. That way, like, you know, when you're doing stuff during the day, you can uh, you can listen, or when you're in the car, you can multitask. So I get the audio book, and I'm still under the gun time wise. And uh, so what I do is I uh, I use the uh, double speed function on the audio book. You know how you can do that? You can play the thing at, at double speed. So if you're playing it at normal speed, it takes like nine hours to get through the book. You play it at double speed. Uh, I would uh, I would venture that it would take about half that, right? Four and a half hours. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to use double speed. And so I was able to ingest at least to some degree the book and, uh, and get through it. But uh, this kind of book, a, a book with uh, this kind of story to tell, uh, listened to at double speed in Ruth's voice. She actually did the narration for the audiobook. Uh, it was an odd experience, I have to be honest with you, because this is really, you know, this book gets into some really heavy territory. And so I want to play you a little bit of what it was like for me to listen to uh, the audiobook of The Sound of Gravel. This is Ruth right here reading. I think this is chap from chapter two. Just a, just a sampling. I'm going to play my phone into the microphone. Here we go. We had to go back and forth from Mexico to the United States every month to collect food stamps, Medicaid, and cash assistance. Mom would bring us along with her on rickety old Mexican buses while Lane stayed. And so you can see what I'm, you know, do you understand what I'm talking about? Walking around Los Angeles in some kind of like sleep-deprived fugue state. Uh, maybe I was hiking. You know, to try to get my, uh, I, I do that to try to wake myself up. I find that exercise actually wakes me up, even if I haven't slept. So I'm like exercising, or I'm in my car, and it's like. Mom was a U.S. citizen after all, and in the eyes of the government, she was a single parent. Because mom was Lane's second wife, their marriage wasn't recognized outside the colony. Lane had a friend. So yeah, so that's what I did, and uh, I got through it. I'm glad that I did. Ruth came over. 
uh, I told her about this. I had to share that with her um, and uh, explain, you know, what the experience was like. I don't know how many people uh, in America who have read this book or, or in particular listened to the audiobook, listen to it in that fashion. Uh, I think my first recommendation would be to read the uh, hardcover edition. I think paper books are the best possible experience for some, you know, for whatever reason, I feel like they're the most uh, sticky, the most immersive. But if you find yourself in a situation where you're looking for a good audiobook, uh, it's a terrific reading. I love it when the author himself or herself reads their own work. I find that to be the most affecting and effective uh, form of audiobook, and that's the case with The Sound of Gravel. So uh, do that if you must, but I would recommend listening to it at regular speed. Uh, so yeah, Ruth Warner coming up in just a minute in conversation. We had a really good talk. Uh, I do want to say a, a, a couple of words about Glenn Fry, and I know this is not as hip as David Bowie, uh, but I mean we are like baby boomer rock icons are dropping like flies. And uh, you know I am an Eagles fan, which again, uh, you know might get me into, into trouble with the hipsters out there. But uh, you know I'm from the Midwest. I'm from uh, Wisconsin and Indiana. Indiana in particular, with its sort of southern bent. I don't know what it was, but I just, when I think to my uh, childhood, my adolescence in Indiana, I feel like the Eagles were just the band that was always on the radio when I was in my car. And, yeah, like, they're like the house band. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, that's kind of how I characterize them to myself. The Eagles were the house band, and I didn't think too much about it when I was a kid. I think I had their greatest hits album, like Everybody in the World. It's like the greatest, it's like, I think it's the highest selling album of all time, still, or one of them. And uh, I knew all those songs. You know, you know the hits. Even if you don't love them, you know them by heart. And then uh, I can kind of track this. I was weird because I was doing some... This was years ago and I was having some uh, design work done on the nervousbreakdown.com. I was sitting with my web designer. We were at his apartment on his computer and he just happened to be playing the Eagles. And it suddenly hit me. I was like, oh man, I love this shit. I love the Eagles brought me back you get nostalgic you know i get nostalgic for bowie too but you know bowie in indiana didn't have the cultural currency of the eagles in a mainstream way i mean he was on the radio too but it, you know indiana's a little bit more countrified it's a little bit more uh, redneck it's not a, like a hip sophisticated urbane avant-garde place so and i did uh, I, I have a memory as we, it's weird i, I kind of had forgotten about this but uh, i saw glenn fry once in los angeles in beverly hills randomly i can't remember i just remember seeing him i think i must have either been in my car or walking and it was on some street in beverly hills i have no idea what i was doing there usually it's like going to the doctor it's where like all the doctors are go to the doctor in Beverly Hills or I was running an errand for an old boss I don't know what I was doing but I saw Glenn Fry. I also saw Leonard Nimoy in a similar way and Howie Mandel and Daryl Hall <laughs> all, all of them they're all you know they're all coming to me in my mind now you sort of amass celebrity sightings when you live in Los Angeles for a long enough period of time and you forget them and and then they come back to you Maybe it's geography that triggers it. I think my Beverly Hills sightings are Howie Mandel, Daryl Hall, Leonard Nimoy, 
Glenn Fry. Tori Spelling. You get the idea. Glenn Fry and Leonard Nimoy. And Daryl Hall. I like Daryl Hall too. See? I'm getting myself into trouble. Though there is, I think, uh, on the cool scale, I feel like something about Hall and Oates. It's somehow cool to embrace them in a way that it maybe isn't cool to embrace the Eagles. But I like the Eagles. I'll stand on that ground. I don't care what anyone says. R.I.P. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest is Ruth Warner, her memoir, The Sound of Gravel, out there now and uh, earning uh, a lot of acclaim. Uh, it's out there now from Flatiron Books. It's the official January selection of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. And uh, it's just an incredible story of uh, tragedy and uh, survival against the odds. And uh, just a great pleasure to have her here. And I think you guys are going to enjoy this conversation. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen, this is Ruth Warner. <laughs> Well, in, in the 1890s, when fundamentalist Mormons um, were asked to stop practicing polygamy, or when it became illegal, basically, in the United States, there were several Mormons who still believed that polygamy was a commandment from God, and still believed in Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, and his teachings about polygamy being an important commandment for, for men and women to practice. Uh, my grandfather was one of those people, and he came from a fundamentalist family, so he moved south of the border um, in the 1920s, and at that point there were already several colonies, Mormon colonies there. And um, how far south of the border? Not far. Just south of Texas, basically. I would say three a three hour drive okay. on a two lane highway. Okay. Yeah, and several of those colonies ended up becoming more progressive and more LDS Mormons, where they weren't practicing polygamy. But my family, my grandfather, my paternal grandfather, still believed that it was an important practice. And he had a revelation that he needed to start a town for people to go to where they could practice that. And there's no law against polygamy in Mexico? There is a law against polygamy in Mexico, but they um, it was never enforced. Ah. So, yeah, there were there were we weddings in secret and things like that, but they never felt the need. They were never... And what what is the what is the logic? Like, why why is polygamy important to a fundamentalist Mormon... To go to go forth and multiply, That's to it. have several children, they believed um, that any kind of birth control was a sin, and they believed that if a man didn't have more than two wives, 
he wouldn't get to the, get into the highest kingdom of heaven and to go back to see God, basically. And so women were asked to have as many children as possible and marry polygamous men who had lots of wives uh, in order to make big families, basically, and bring, to bring souls onto this earth. Make some more Mormons. <laughs> exactly. You know? Make some more Mormons, uh, spread the religion, and um, allow souls in heaven to come to earth and prove themselves earthly servants to God. To prove themselves to God. And this this was your father's belief as well? This obviously. was my father's belief as well, yeah. So my grandfather started Colonial LeBaron, the town where I was born, in 1944, in order to provide a safe place for polygamists to practice, to practice basically. Um, and my dad helped found the town. Um, and when my grandfather died, he was the prophet at the time, and he gave his authority to my father. Who had doubts. He didn't, my dad initially, and this is the story as I've been told it, didn't want the responsibility of running the church. And he ended up having a vision not long after my grandfather told him he was the one mighty and strong, they called it, or the prophet, uh, went on to a mountaintop in Utah and there saw, had a vision of Jesus and Joseph Smith and Moses and several other prophets and they told him that he was indeed the prophet. In other words, he was God's voice on earth. He was God's representation on earth. And that's what I was taught. My God. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that no, was, no pun intended. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that was, um, that's what he claimed to be. And he started to convert people all over the United States, actually, going into LDS Mormon Church, whereas, where polygamy was at that point um, frowned upon. And started to ask questions and started to ask LDS Mormons, like, why are we not living polygamy anymore? It was such an important part of early Mormonism. And that's how my mom's family got converted. My mom was, grew up LDS Mormon, and by the time she was 14, they, um, my dad and his, young, his younger brother, Ervil, were going around with pamphlets questioning the Mormon faith. See, this is interesting because a, a question that rises, you know, arose for me um, you know, with the book was how earnest is the belief that leads to this behavior and do the men in particular who come to fundamentalism in the Mormon faith come to it, um, out of like a really earnest, sincere, uh, however misguided religious belief, or do they come to it because like, like using the, reli like the religion as sort of like the front for, um, you know, a desire to uh, lead a promiscuous sexual existence. Right. I think you probably get everybody in between. I mean, people come at it from different reasons. And my understanding from my father was that he was sincere when he started his religion. And my mom certainly believed that when she talked about him. She felt like he was a Christ-like figure and he was well-intended. And he was somebody who really dedicated his life to his family, his, his wives, and his church. Um, so my mom, by the time she was 14, my grandfather, who had been raised LDS Mormon in a monogamous Mormon family, uh, saw the questions that my dad and his brother had set out on, literally it was a pamphlet put in his, put under his uh, windshield wiper at church, came in with the pamphlet, started wondering about the questions, took him to his bishop and was later that week, he and his whole family were excommunicated from the church and asked to leave. In Utah? In Utah. It was in Ogden, Utah. Okay. Yeah, my mom was 14. And it was devastating at first 
because my grandfather had been so dedicated to the church. And, and that's but that's how intense it was with regard to polygamy. Like you even started to broach this topic and they excommunicated him. Yeah, and my understanding is that at that time the LDS church wasn't talking about polygamy at all. It's not, they weren't nearly as open. Absolutely, it was bad PR. They weren't talking about it and they didn't want anybody even asking about it at that point. Um, it's much more open about it now. I mean, it kind of has to be just because it's out in the open everywhere in American culture now. Uh, but back then, so as soon as my father was uh, excommunicated, and it was devastating to the family because they had been raised in the Sunday school class. And in fact, just after he would, be, my family had been asked to leave the church, the Sunday school teacher didn't realize that they'd been kicked out and called my grandmother and said, why aren't, why isn't Kathy in Sunday school? You know, why isn't she at church? Right. So it was uh, hard on the family at first, but my grandfather ended up taking it as a sign from God that... Um, because he was kicked out, that the LeBaron brothers were probably right. Sold his property in Ogden, Utah, and moved south of the border to Colonial LeBaron. Wow. Yeah. And so describe LeBaron. For people listening who haven't you know, read the book and don't know like what LeBaron is, but it's, like a, it's like a neighborhood of yeah, it's, like it's concrete an American... like, or adobe houses? or Yeah. Back in the 70s and 80s when I lived there, there were it was dirt roads. Uh, small town, farms, barbed wire fences, lots of homes without electricity. It was a pioneer style living. And in our house, we didn't have electricity. It was kind of still being built as we were living there. An adobe five-room house. For forever under construction. Yeah, forever under, <laughs> falling apart while the inside was being rebuilt constantly. So uh, we didn't have a bathroom, didn't have electricity, didn't have a telephone. You had an outhouse. You know, we had an outhouse, a wooden outhouse. Yeah, in the early part of my childhood. The bathroom was eventually finished, but it was still pretty primitive. Well, um, and then, like, we should talk about the shower head. Like, oh, yeah. I mean, this, I mean, this is just to give people an idea of how rustic you guys were living. Like, in addition to an outhouse, when you finally got a shower, the shower head had an electrical Yeah, component. it was. <laughs> well, my stepfather at that time, my dad died when I was a baby. And my stepfather, my mom remarried another polygamist after my dad died, and... He didn't, he tried to bring electricity to our property and he actually did so, but it was kind of, he did it in a kind of jemmy rigged sort of way. He wasn't a, an electrician by any means. And we didn't have running water for years. Literally, we just had a faucet that came up out of the cement floor that, that we, you know, put a pan under and ran water into. And then for hot water, we just put it on the stove to heat it up. So eventually, I think I was about 10 when we finally got a shower head and electricity on the farm. And the shower was basically a pipe that came up out of the ground, and it was electrical in order to warm the water. And I don't know how it all worked exactly. I didn't understand the uh, science behind it. Um, but it was a lukewarm shower, so it was just a pipe that came up literally out of a cement floor and went up the cement wall and uh, arched over with a round shower head, silver shower head. And it was electric? Yes. Oh, my God. Yeah, the pipe was electric. And my mom had to put a little rubber hand coin purse around the handle the, to uh, turn the water off and on because it would shock you otherwise. My God. Yeah. Okay, so the, extremely difficult circumstances, um, pretty extreme poverty. Yeah. My stepfather had four wives, my mom was his second. And this is your stepfather, Lane. My stepfather, Lane. Okay. The man and, she and, married after my dad died. Right. And, and we should talk, we should stop because we, just to keep the chronology somewhat straight, um, your father was killed by your uncle. He was 
My uncle Ervil, they started the church together in the 1950s, and this was after my dad had claimed to be prophet. And Ervil believed it, and he started converting people like he converted my, my mom and her family, um, my grandparents. And they converted several Americans. But what, by, what, what is several? Um, there were, they converted a lot of LDS Mormon families from Utah and Colorado City which was called Short Creek at the time. It was another oh, okay. polygamous Mormon town. And a lot of Americans moved south of the border, and they, they in fact, uh, converted Mexicans, too, to their church. So it seemed to be that the church was growing and flourishing, and my dad started another community, uh, another polygamous community just south of uh, Ensenada, so south of San Diego. So they had two Mormon towns going, Um and by the time I was born in 1972, there was a split in the church, and my uncle, my dad's younger brother, Ervil, had decided that, no, he was, in fact, the prophet. He had his own visions and started claiming authority and then started telling his followers that he was now converting, some of which were my dad's original followers. And he started telling them that my dad was a false prophet and started preaching something called blood atonement, which is something in early Mormon doctrine that states that you need to, people who are sinning need to be taken out or need to be killed in order to save their souls. So my uncle Ervil was literally telling his followers that they needed to kill my father in order to save his soul because he was claiming to be a false prophet. And so by 1972, when I was born, I was three months old, Ervil LeBaron never pulled the trigger, but he ordered his followers to have my dad assassinated. So three men showed up in a small, empty house where my father was and beat him up and shot him twice God. and executed him. Who did it? Do, you, do we know who did it? My understanding, and this is just what I've heard, um, was a man called Dan Jordan and two of the Mexican followers, and I'm not sure what their names are. And Dan Jordan was one of my original, my father's original followers, actually. So, yeah, there was a split in the church, and my dad was actually my uh, my uncle's first victim. They ended up calling him the Mormon Manson. Uh, my uncle Ervil had his children, his wives, and his followers kill other prophets, anybody who disagreed with him, basically. And, um, and, like, Manson, assassinate and, him. and like Manson, like outsourced all of the He outsourced dirty everything, work. never committed the crime himself. And, in fact, when he had my father murdered in Ensenada, he was sitting... Uh, in a movie theater, an air-conditioned movie theater, while his people had were killing my father. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I think about people like that, like a Manson or somebody, anybody who can convince people to do something that extreme. He must have been an ex a very charismatic person. I think the LeBaron brothers were all very charismatic. They were all known for being friendly and kind and really nice, and they were all tall brothers. But also, um, but also a psychopath. I mean, this guy. Oh, yeah. Eventually, that's what it became. But schizophrenia was also common in that family. Two of my father's siblings were hospitalized with schizophrenia. So I, there must have been something so when you, when genetically. You, well, I mean, people thinking that they're the prophet and people yeah. seeing uh, God and Jesus and Joseph Smith on the top of a mountain. I mean, I'm always fascinated by, by those who claim to have had these visions, mm -hmm. Pe people who claim to have interacted with ghosts. None of this stuff ever happens to me. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I'd, give, I'd give anything to have a supernatural experience. It's just complete silence. It's a, you know, I get nothing. And I'm, I, I, I'm very skeptical to say the least yeah. when I hear people 
make such claims. Well, and it's still going on. There are offshoots of the Mormon church all over the place. Fundamentalist Warren Jeffs. Yeah, absolutely. He's another one who claimed that kind of, the same kind of priesthood, they called it, that my father and my uncle claimed. And my grandfather, too. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So how many many children did your father have with your mother? My dad had four kids with my mom. Okay. And uh, I have three full siblings, two older brothers and an older sister. And he had, with his wives, he had seven wives when he died and had 42 kids. And he died young. So he probably would have had a much bigger family at that point. Um, so he died at 49 in 1972. And I was only three months old at the time. So I'm the youngest of his with my mother. And, and uh, there were three children born after me, actually. And one actually was born after he was killed. There were five of us born in 1972. Wow. Between five wives. How many, um, between full siblings and half siblings and all, you know, how many do you have? You know, my dad had 42 kids. Yeah. And then my mom with my stepfather had six additional kids. So if you think about it all together, I actually have 47. My God. Yeah. And that's not including step siblings. So I have 41 with my dad on his side and then six more with my mom. (laughs) It's hard to keep track of. (laughs) It's really hard to explain to people. And people from the church, from the uh, Church of the Firstborn, the church that my dad started, totally get it. I can talk to my cousins and we can go down the family tree. We totally understand. But other people, it's like trying to describe a spider web of a family. You know, you could never make a family tree out of it. Well, yeah. I mean, I I come from a big family, but nothing like that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I think it pales in comparison. Yeah. Yeah. So your mother then, uh, after your father is killed, your mother remarries. So you enter the world into a crazy situation very dramatic situation because ervil was still living and he was still threatening our everybody in our church threatening to bomb our church and he had in fact uh bombed the town los molinos it was called the windmills which is just south of california um did it i think it was on new christmas eve new year's eve it was during the holidays one year and killed two people and set the whole town on fire the town that he and my father had founded and that was still, I think it was just the year after after he was killed, after my dad was killed. So about 1973, So his behavior was escalating. It was escalating. It was escalating all over the place. And he was sending threatening letters and threatening phone calls to our town. And I was told when I was, just after my little brother was born, Aaron, I was five years old. And I was told by my mom, you know, make sure that you ask who it is when somebody knocks at the door. And if you hear sh- gunshots or bombs or any kind of explosives to run to the peach trees. We lived on a farm that had peach orchards. Take your baby brother, run, and throw yourselves on the ground and cover your brother so that you don't get shot. How old were you at this point? I was five. Five. Yeah. Did you just say that? Five and six years old. Yes. That's That's okay. That's early. (laughs) I was young, but that was the threat. I mean, he was the ghostly... Well, figure and, of my life, and the that monster. That, but the house that you lived in at LeBaron didn't exactly have deadbolts, did it? No, it had a nail that kept it shut. So no, we weren't exactly protected. Yeah. But my mom had my my grandfather, my um, my mother's father served uh, in World War II. So we had this Japanese rifle that my grandfather had given to my mom for protection, and we had literally one bullet for this <laughs> for this for rifle. Herbal. It's got Herbal's herbal. name on it. It had Herbal's <laughs> name on it, and I could I still remember the feel of that bullet in my hand, and my mom trying to practice shooting this rifle if Herbal ever came to our house. <laughs> but that's wow. it. That's all we had. Wow. Yeah. So our instructions were just to run to the trees, basically, and hide yourself. So I want to talk about your mom. Yes. Who I think is... Uh, in addition to obviously you, uh, but she really to me is the the central character of the 
character of the book, person in the book. Yeah, absolutely. I found her enormously, uh, what's the word? I I sympathized so much with her. Um, She's such a loving mother, but she made such big mistakes. Yeah, she Um, did. And I was just, I was heartbroken. And it made me think about people all people and how we all try our best to do the right thing and how sometimes it can just go horribly wrong (laughs) despite best intentions. And, um, I don't know. I I guess that's, I wanted to say that, like, I just really loved her and for all of her faults, I loved her. I know I loved her too. She was, well, she's the central person in the book because that's what she was in our lives. And my stepfather didn't come home much. You know, he had all these wives. He worked in, he worked in the States a lot. Um, and my mom was, the foundation of our, of everything for us. Um, she provided for us cause my stepfather never could. Um, and, and so, by provided she, you mean like she would drive across the border, get she, food stamps. Yeah. She was an American citizen. So she collected welfare and food stamps and uh, from various addresses in the United States, usually in El Paso or San Diego for, yeah. uh, for a, a family that's growing to yeah. double digit children. Yeah, I mean, exactly. She, and the welfare system is much different now than it was back in the seventies and eighties. Back then you could get away with having more and more kids and just putting them on welfare. If you'd, and so we actually all took our mother's maiden name on our birth certificates um, so they couldn't find out who the father was and not collect child support from them. And plus, she was never legally married. I mean, you could never legally marry that many women. So, But it was my mom's responsibility, really, to provide for us, and that's the way she did it. She ended up having 10 kids, three of them disabled, and she used the system to support us. That, that isn't it. Like the, as, a, as a parent of young children... Imagining having that many kids yeah. in those conditions yeah. with that little money, three of whom are disabled, mm-hmm. her burden was so large. It was so heavy, and writing this book really helped me have more compassion for her and the understanding for what she, how her belief system really limited her and the harsh, con- harsh conditions that really all the women that lived in LeBaron at that time lived under with so many kids. And the oldest... Um, non-disabled daughter in every family was the second, you know, the right hand mother basically was the next to the, was the, the helper, the babysitter Sure. because the men weren't around. And, um, so yeah, that was my role with the family, um, being the fourth daughter. You, Uh, you were basically raising children from a very young age. Oh yeah. Five years old. I learned to change diapers. Yeah, my little brother. Do you have kids of your own? No, I don't. You're like, I'm done. <laughs> I was going to say, if you I have love kids. kids. I love kids. But yeah. I raised my three youngest sisters since they were babies. Um, they were really young. And I I loved that I did that. And I, I'm so glad that my family was able to stay together in really harsh circumstances. But I didn't get married for the first time until I was 36. And so, and I've only been married once. I don't know why I stated it that way. But <laughs> <laughs> I was 36. Had I gotten married, I think, in my 20s, had it worked out with the right man, I might have considered doing that while I still had my sisters in my house, and I became a high school teacher in my 20s, and it would have been doable, but for me, by the time I was 36, I felt like I was 150 years old, and I just did not want to start family again, yeah, Yeah, a brand new family. You've done it I had done it, yeah, yeah, and uh, my husband and I were both on the same page. He had two severely autistic boys that he raised with his first wife, his former wife wife and um you know they had all moved out at that point when we finally met it was it was good timing for us for he and I and uh, we just were not ready to start a family again sure yeah so I got 
I got a lot of flack from my Mormon family <laughs> for making that choice, and I think it was one that was really hard for them to understand, even though I hadn't been in the church, you know, for 20 years. I was going to say, are you still... You're not, are, are no, you... I'm not practicing either fundamentalist or modern-day progressive, more the LDS church, either one. Do you designate yourself in any way, or are you just... Uh, uh, I call myself spiritual. To me, I've always been a very prayerful person, and I think that's helped me heal, and it certainly helped me as a single parent with my sisters, like sitting down and just meditating and being like, okay, what are we going to do? How's this going to work out? So I've, I've meditated and I pray and I have some very spiritual beliefs, but for me now it's personal. And I, I don't think God belongs to any specific faith or any specific person. And I certainly don't want this one white guy telling me, (laughs) you know, (laughs) I have to believe this way or I have to believe that way. So for me, it's, it's, very personal works better it works better for me it's insp- it's what inspires me and just being quiet with myself and yeah sure i've so, tried church it didn't work for me yeah i was <laughs> i was raised catholic i was i dropped out when i was like 15 yeah just, yeah but you know me I, too 15 I, that's when i left the church yeah yeah so okay so we have to talk about uh a little bit of the bad stuff i mean there's a lot of tragedy in your in your childhood you had uh your stepfather lane was a very abusive, very abusive. sexually abusive mm-hmm. um such a creep yeah revolting and uh revolting man you know never held responsible for anything that he ever did not even for the family for the kids that he that he had i mean he was a sperm donor and and you know the women his wives your mother included became uh, apologists for him they did which is a really hard thing to stomach as you're reading or as you know in my case as i was listening to the audiobook at double speed yeah <laughs> Um, that's where the complexity of your mother, um, you know, is really driven home, like weighing the, like, like, as you said earlier, kind of imprisoned by her own beliefs. Yeah. Your own child is coming to you and saying, mom, uh, he's abusing me. He'd been abusing me for years. Um, I told her about it the first time and he apologized. I went to her immediately. He apologized. But then it kept happening. And at that point, I felt pretty powerless just because nothing happened the first time I told her. And eventually, though, it was about a four-year period, three or four-year period, um, where it continued. And he wasn't around much. It was just like when he showed up once in a while um, for lots of different reasons. Um, and I found out that two of my stepsisters had come to me or rather I asked them if it had been happening to them and found out that it was. And so the three of us went to both of our mothers and, uh, or all of our mothers and, um, told them what was happening. And my mom was dumbfounded. She didn't believe me initially because I never liked my stepfather for other reasons. (laughs) This was just one more thing. Um, what were the other reasons? Well, he was abusive towards my mother, too. And he was not an affectionate person towards her. I think I always resented him for not looking after her and taking care of her in spite of the responsibility she had with all of his children. Um, so, yeah, and he was... And he, he was just, violent with her. He was violent. Brutally violent. Yeah, brutally violent at times. Um, and it was his in, in his nature to be that way. He was just a... Um, you know, he grew up in a fundamentalist church and he believed that he was becoming a God and he pretty much got away with anything and everything he wanted to. It's not dissimilar to the stories you hear, 
uh, about fundamentalists in other faiths. Exactly. You know, yeah, like that that's kind of it, extremism. That kind of any kind of you know any kind of religious extremism. But I think a lot of times in you know in the modern context, you know, everyone's pointing to the Middle East and saying fundamentalist Islam and. You know, they're uh, doing all this crazy stuff and stoning people. And, yeah. you know, it's it's worth remembering that there are strains of this right here at home. There are. And Absolutely. this kind of behavior is not exclusive to one part of the world or one particular faith tradition. Yeah. Well, our the culture that I grew up in, the fundamentalist religion that I grew up in, was, you know, I mean, Mormonism was started in the 1830s. And the sect that my dad continued with was still set in that kind of mentality where women were kind of like your pets, so to speak, or, you know, they were supposed to obey their, um, their husbands as if they were almost like their fathers. Uh, so that was definitely something that, that was practiced in the colony. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it, it was devastating. Me, I, I found myself, I find myself like, well, reading your book, but also just in I often find myself in life feeling embarrassed of being a man. Oh, <laughs> men behave so badly, so calm. It's so you know. It's like well, the religion and our culture and the way it's embraced religion, the fundamentalist side of re, of lots of different religions, and the what the the kind of power that have, that has been given to men traditionally is by men. By men, you know, they're giving exactly. it to themselves. It's right. like it's like the, the founder of Mormonism was man was a man, and you know, he was the almighty authority that was going to one day become a god on his own planet and the women were going to be his servants in heaven and in order to get there you had to obey and have as many kids as possible and you know it was uh it was not something it's not, it was it was there was a gender bias happening. there absolutely <laughs> women were second class citizens there's no doubt about it yeah. and my mother came into that religion as a 17 year old and learned that way she was conditioned that she was not as important as my stepfather was and it's a big reason why she stayed yeah even after the abuse and everything that it's was so embedded on. the belief system it was so is... embedded and it was normal for women to stay in well, spite I, of and there was also like an apo- there's also like an apocalyptic thing happening where um you know the the fundamentalist Mormons at LeBaron, your mother included, believed that the uh, United States, it's often referred to as Babylon. Uh, yep, yeah, that's what they called it. It's going under. It's about to. The whole thing's going to go up. Yeah, my grandfather, my paternal grandfather, the prophet, uh, the self-proclaimed pro- prophet, had a vision as a young man that he was in Mexico and he turned around and could see over the border, the Texas border, and just watch the United States crumble that it would be on fire and that it was going to completely fall because of the corrupt government and corrupt morals from his perspective right and he could see people running across the border to mexico and that's another reason that lebaron was established was for these people who would be god's chosen people could come across the border and have a safe place to go um, away from the states basically so my mom was constantly waiting for the United States to crumble. They never knew what was going to happen. And mind you, this is all in the middle of the Cold War, too. So we were expecting... It's a little bit more excusable when there's like a nuclear Cold yeah, War. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they were preparing for it constantly. But, I it's, mean, just, but it's always funny with these apocalyptic uh, religious people when they keep predicting the end days you yeah. know, or whatever, the final days, and they just keep... It's No, it's it's just a little bit further in the future. Yep. You know, it never happens when they say it's going to happen. You have these guys who predict the date. The day comes and goes. It doesn't happen. Yeah. They just readjust. Readjust. It's very flexible. You're very flexible. <laughs> um, so you are a young child basically serving as a nanny. Mm-hmm. You know, a work, oh, yeah, definitely. A, a worker in your, own, in your own household. Your brothers are helping. 
uh, with the farm. Yep. It's a it's a farm family. It's a dairy farm. Yeah, yeah it was a dairy farm. And everybody's working, but you also had siblings who were disabled. Uh, is it Audrey? Audrey. Okay. Yeah. Audrey, the firstborn. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do we? Schizophrenia. She she, she was born. She was never diagnosed with autism, but her the people who take care of her now definitely. She didn't like to be touched. She was not social. She was pretty violent or very violent. So um, they, I don't think my mom had the kind of doctors access to the doctors that needed to. Um, and it was back in the early late sixties, early seventies, and they hadn't diagnosed her until later on in life. And on top of that, as a teenager, she was diagnosed with an early onset of schizophrenia. Which was prevalent in my dad's side of the family. So that was definitely something she got from that side of the family. Um, and she ended up being hospitalized at the age of 14. So had to institu- be. she had to be institutionalized in order to survive because she wouldn't eat at home. Um, so she was institutionalized in California while we were living there for a little while with close to my grandparents, my mom's parents. Um, at that point, they had left the church. After my dad was killed, uh, my mom's family that had once been converted left the church, and my mom was really the only one who stayed behind. Yeah, so your grandpa- your maternal grandparents yes. lived in California. Yeah. And were sort of like your foundation of sanity. They were. They were the safe place to go to, definitely. I and they were my experience. I kept wanting you to be there. I know. <laughs> I, I did too. That's, that's what I wanted throughout my childhood. I wanted to go back to California, and I always thought about that. I dreamt about it, and it was because we lived there for a couple, two years and it was a comfortable lifestyle when we did. We rented a house and it had running water and oh my God. a carpet and <laughs> central heating. I mean, it was warm. So, um, yeah, I always dreamt about going back there as a kid. So, so. yeah, you had Audrey. I mean, just to, to finish, because I, I think that this um, this is an incredible lot. It's a lot to deal with as a mother, as yeah. a sibling, in any household to have one child who's disabled. Absolutely. But... Audrey was autistic with schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. Uh, Luke, is it Luke? Yeah, Luke. I, okay, mm-hmm. so Luke was... Luke lo- was 18 months older than me, and my brother Matt was born between Audrey and Luke. So Matt and I were the two um, not special needs person. You know, we were the the two the, that were born out of four that were quote-unquote normal, I guess you would call it. And my brother Luke was born with brain damage, and the doctors never diagnosed him with any specific illness, um, but he was, they definitely said he suffered from some type of malnutrition or something that happened to him where he has trouble communicating and um, was delayed in most ways. You know, he's 18 months older than me and 45 now, so he um, still has trouble reading. He still likes Pokemon cards. He's about the, at the level of an eight-year-old. He's like a child in a I have, I have an uncle like that. Yeah. And, and yeah. Luke's a really good athlete, though. He is. He plays three sports a year in Special Olympics. So does my, my uncle's that way. Oh, that's awesome. He's like a freaky good athlete. Yeah. You know? And that, he was. My brother, Luke, was the muscular, athletic one. He played golf for the first time in Special Olympics in Oregon, took gold, and then was um, through a lottery-type draw, uh, went to the nationals for special Olympics in New Jersey and got to do that. Um, and then took fifth for the country wow. <laughs> in golf after wow. the first time he played it. That's incredible. And that's how he, he's been. I mean, just he's a just, natural. just a natural. And if you looked at him, you would never know that he had any kind of disability until you started a conversation and you could hear it right away oh, yeah, okay. that he has trouble with his communication and speech. But so, okay. So that, okay. Cause like I'm, I'm just comparing to my uncle. I think my uncle's, well, I was going to say chromosomal, but I guess I don't know for sure. Yeah. When you look at him, you know, and I think that usually indicates that there's something chromosomal. But with your brother, maybe it was just like, 
like you said, malnutrition. Some, some type of brain damage. It could have happened even in the birth canal. Yeah. yeah. There's, there was yeah. some talk about that with my uncle. Yeah. It's, it's hard yeah. to know. Especially it is hard to know. Back in those days or in a situation um, like LeBaron where maybe the medical care isn't. Exactly. The medical care, she didn't have great access to medical care, but we also didn't have a lot of good food. I mean, my grandmother, my, my mom's mom used to complain about my dad and how he had left her in a one bedroom trailer with all these little children and a sack of beans to survive on with some eggs that she had to go to her sister wives basically to ask for permission to use or to have or to eat. So, um, that's how poor they were. And that's what Luke was born into. Wow. Yeah. So, and then, uh, Mary, um, your sister was also born with what hydrocephalus? That's right. It's hydrocephalus, hydrocephalus. I believe. And they, that was another disease where they didn't, they didn't understand where it came from. Um, I don't, what is hydrocephalus? It's a growth of water on the brain. Oh. Yeah. So she had, and this is Lane's daughter. So she was, she was six and a half years younger than me. And I was her caretaker a lot. Um, cause my mom had a few children after she was born and she had hydrocephalus and her brain or his, her head basically was growing faster than the rest of her body. And she never really learned to speak or eat. Uh, we fed her with a tube and didn't really have motor skills. And my mom started to worry about her when she was about nine months old and she wasn't rolling over or crawling at that point. So, um, it was a devastating, devastating disease for her. Yeah. Yeah. And she, she passed away at what age? She was four years old. Yeah. She died when I was 10 and I never realized until I wrote the memoir, how that had affected me as a child. I kind of thought I was over it, you know, and I started writing about her. You're never over it. (laughs) No, no, you know, it changes your life forever. Yeah. And I started writing about her and I had to take a break. I would just sob. It made me so sad because you think. She didn't learn to talk. She didn't interact with me, but she was this warm body that I used to bathe and hold on to and change her diapers and feed. And, you know, I didn't realize how much I had absolutely adored this, this little, little girl, you know, yeah. that was so helpless. Yeah. It's I mean, it's rough. And I was thinking, you know, you're reading the parts of the book where the family's, you know, packed into the micro bus yep. or whatever. And <laughs> you're feeding her with a tube and the yeah. micro, I'm just like, this is... And I think people listening, I mean, the, the, will share the feeling I had when I was reading where you're just like, I can't believe all these people had to deal with. I don't, I've read a lot of, about a lot of, uh, difficult childhoods. Yeah. Yours takes the prize. Yeah. I've never read about a person's upbringing that more difficult than yours. Well, I was born into a very dramatic circumstance. I mean, my dad had been murdered and the whole town was, I was afraid my mom was going to die in the same way that my dad had because my uncle Erbil was threatening us and his followers were threatening us constantly. That's how my life started. And so when my younger siblings were born and plus my autistic sister used to beat us up. I mean, no, those, those, <laughs> the scenes where you were describing yeah. what she would do. It was like she was whole, so strong. It was, it was, it was scary to listen to. Yeah. It was scary to read. Cause I was like, you just oh, don't God. feel safe. Yeah. I was like, Oh God, she's going to attack. You know, yeah. that kind of, that's feeling. what I felt like all the time. Oh. And I still have that stress as I talk about it in my shoulders <laughs> and in my neck, like, Oh my God. <laughs> oh, so. But yeah, but my mom was the patient kind person. And that's one of the things once I became a teenager and once she decided to stay with my stepfather, I had so much conflict about her because she was amazing. She always tried to make things fun for us, even though we didn't have a lot of money and she was kind and loving. And my friends in LeBaron who had abusive mothers, um, you know, I mean, it, it was kind of normal to be corporal punishment was huge and 
nobody, everybody told my mom that she spoiled us, you know, because she was a kind person. And my friends wanted, and my half siblings wanted her to be their mother. She was that mom. She was that mom. She was the nice mom. And it created a tremendous amount of conflict and frustration and anger in me as a child. And she decided to stay because I did not understand why she would, because she was that mom. Yeah. Yeah, She was that mom. Why did she stay? It was this, it was just, this was her world. It was too scary to leave. I mean, because I can understand to a degree being imprisoned by one's belief system. Yeah. But when presented with evidence that, you know, your husband is abusing your children. Yeah. Uh, when you've been living for years, when you have special needs children. Yeah. Who are not getting proper nutrition. Right. I mean, these are pretty uh, stark examples you know, of like, or stark pieces of evidence. Like we need Absolutely. to pack we up need and to change. change. Yeah. And she wouldn't change. And she wouldn't change. And we had those conversations even... As a teenager, I talked back. I was kind of a feisty kid, and I was like, Mom, what are you doing? Why are you still here? I mean, it just used to upset me and frustrate me so badly. What would she say? And she'd say things like, well, it's none of your business why I stay. And I don't think my children should be raised without a father the way you don't have a father. And women need to be in a relationship. Women need to be married to a man in order to have more children and in order to get to heaven. Um. I think, and my mom used to say, I mean, my father, the prophet of the church, before he died, she said that it was harder to live with him than it was to live with my stepdad, Lane, because living conditions were much, much harsher with my real father. So she felt like she had taken a step up. (laughs) I'm not kidding. My dad, my stepdad only had four wives. She entered into a polygamous relationship, was the fifth wife at 17 years old to a 42-year-old prophet, very charismatic man. And this was her conditioning. She didn't think she deserved better than that. And so as a result, because of their perspective on a woman's place in this religion and this society, it was transferred to me. And he was more important. And that was something that I, as a child, just devastated me. It was, it was heartbreaking. Um, so why, was, why, why, were you, why do you think you were able to see through it? Why do you think you didn't? Like take on the beliefs of your mother. I saw her suffer too much. I just saw her suffer. She was abused. She was neglected constantly. Um, she suffered with migraines. She was depressed a lot, even though she was never diagnosed. This is just me looking back on my childhood thinking this is, must have been what she was going through. And I think she suffered from a lack of self-love. And that um, she didn't, because she didn't believe she deserved better, she didn't look for a better way of life or go for a better way of life because she could have found it. My grandparents, her parents were always there for her. They, my grandfather, um, always tried to convince her to get out and always provided, provided a place for us to stay and to come back to. And my grandfather died feeling very repent, repentive for what he had done for getting his daughters involved in polygamy. Cause my mom's two oldest sisters were also in polygamous relationships that they left. Um, and so it was hard on my grandparents to realize that they had gotten my mother involved with this church as a teenager. And it was something that made him really, really sad. Uh, yeah. And I think that kind of guilt always, they were always there for her as a result and in a lot of different ways. I mean, they let her borrow money and, uh, let us live with them for a while and lo- lots of ways. Yeah, um, they seem sweet. They were sweet people. I mean, they're kind of your average American grandpa and grandma. 
really. And that's how I saw them. And I think that's another thing that, uh, for me, being exposed to nice people who weren't cruel and mean, who weren't, you know, Babylonians and wicked and stuff, being able, being able or having that exposure to them helped me realize that I deserved and could have a better way of life. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, it, it, like, you know, the story of your childhood builds towards tra- I mean, there's, there's tragedy all the way through. Yeah, there is. But it escalates. Yeah. Uh, almost like a, um, it's almost like a, a novel. Do you know what I'm saying? Like a, there, yeah, there's an it's arc. almost like fiction. It's almost like fiction because it escalates, it escalates, it reaches a kind of a, a really a breaking sad, point. A really sad breaking point. The yeah. word that the word that comes to mind is reckless. Um, I don't know if it's the right word, but if there was like a recklessness to staying. Yeah, you there know, was a severe neglect. Yeah, and it was just like, oh, you got to go, and it just felt like, um, you know, when we we get to the end, kind of the end of your LeBaron story, which it ends very sadly. Your mother passes away. Yeah. On the same day that your brother passes away. Yeah, my baby brother, my youngest brother, not my baby brother. Yeah. Um. I don't know. I don't even know what I want to say other than like it I, was. I, just, it was devastating. It was heartbreaking, and it was completely tragic but as you said it was reckless behavior and it could have been avoided um but yeah but i mean like the the, the behavior i mean the, the they died um they were electrocuted yeah uh, mm-hmm. there's an electric fence that yeah. that your stepfather had improperly wired yes so it was a dangerous situation mm-hmm. uh, that's negligent there was electricity, open wires of electricity, literally all over our property, just because of the way he laid the wires and tried to ferry electricity from one wife's house to the next. Yeah. And so when I say reckless, I don't just mean that, that awful day. Yeah. I mean the, the accumulation yeah. of decisions, bad decisions, um, evil behavior. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? All of it, to me, it just felt like, oh, God. And um, it just... It's just really heartbreaking that it it takes some it takes a breaking point like that to get you get you to the next stage of your life. Right. But that is what it took. It was very sad and I always look back on that time. It changed me just like when my when Mary died, my sister died. Um you know, it changed my life. It changed my personality, it changed my soul and the direction of my life. And how, um, how can you describe how? Like what when you look back, you know, all of this uh, heartache and all of this loss, all of the abuse you suffered, that, that's quite a bit to process. It's a lot. It was a lot in my first 15 years of life. But I had three youngest, my three youngest sisters were five months, two and four years old. And then my brother Aaron was 10. And looking at them. And Luke was how old? Luke was 17. Yeah, okay. I was 15 and he Luke was 17. But still, he was kind of in your care as well. He was, yeah, because he was like a child. He was probably, you know, like a four or five-year-old at so that you, time. You have five children, essentially, that you yeah. feel responsible for. I felt the- responsible for. We were living with Lane's other wives. We were kind of moving, playing musical houses from wife to wife. And- because when you're orphaned, you who you want to go live with is the sister wife. Right. <laughs> the, 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 that happens all the time, actually, I'm in polygamy. Sure. Yeah. But I mean, and like the thing is, though, is that uh, it wasn't that you hated all of these women. Some of them you were actually... No, uh, they were nice people. Not yeah. every, you know, polygamists are human beings, too. They're, they're nice people that have a totally different belief system. And unfortunately for women, it makes them feel like, you know, less than a man. You know, like their place in the world isn't as important. Well, but, but the antipathy tends to be between the women, not between yeah. the children and no, the women. Yeah. It's the, like the wives can get competitive and kind of... 
um, they have a hard time sharing yeah. the husband. But yeah, but they were always kind to the children, to and the children. they helped babysit each other's children, and that's what happened when my mom died. Yeah. So you uh, you leave with your siblings, mm-hmm. and you embark on the rest of your life at age fifteen. Yeah. You raised these kids. Yeah, we lived with my grandmother for four years. And then when I was 19, my grandmother was advanced in age and had uh, pretty advanced diabetes and some heart trouble. And it was hard on her to take us all in. And actually, my grandfather, who we'd all been very close to, died just a few months before my mom did. And so we ended up um, living with her for four years. And then my aunt and uncle, my mom's youngest sister and her husband, lived in southern Oregon in Grants Pass. And I had cousins, my mom's cousins, really people that I had never met before because we were always the secret family, you know, kind of kept away from the rest (laughs) of the family. My grandmother was very uh, ashamed of our polygamous lifestyle, and her family was very Christian. So, but once we started living with her, I met all my mom's cousins that I didn't ever know existed, and they offered to take one child here and one child there and to kind of separate them all over California And I didn't want that. I really wanted for myself and my family, my sisters, to stay together. And so at 19, we moved out on our own. And I started college. I was working at a wrecking yard, making six seventy five an hour, and I was just like, "What I, were you doing at a wrecking yard?" I was doing accounts receivable, okay. secretary. Like, yeah, I, I was answering. Points. I had a sledgehammer, <laughs> <laughs> just banging on steel, <laughs> doing DV, DMV paperwork stuff like that with wrecked cars and uh, and all the billing, basically. Put yourself through college. Yeah, I started. I was I spent a lot of time with my little sisters. At that point, they were in elementary school, and I loved watching kids learn, and I loved to see because I loved learning myself. And I was taken out of school at 14 before my mom died to help her with the kids. You know, she couldn't do it on her own, and she she thought she was pregnant actually when she died. So that was after she had 10 kids. Oh. So Every time, every time in the book where you're like and really? then she was pregnant again. I was yeah. like, no, don't stop. <laughs> well, like, and his other wives were too. Oh, my God. They were all having kids it's at insane. the same time. That's so, I mean, it's so insane. I, having watched a woman go through this twice, I mean, it's just, it's too much to well, ask. Well, how, do how does your body recover? Yes. How it's does... a big biological event. It should only be done three times tough. <laughs> 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 you know, like, I agree with you. Holy yeah. cow. It's so... Just, and it was just so hard. It was hard for me to watch because I had been exposed to the United States and modern day living. And so for me to watch my mom go through that, it was, it was pretty, it was torture. Yeah. Yeah. It you was don't tough. seem bitter. I've been bitter, okay. but I had Good. to make a Good. choice. Because I was like, I'm bitter for you. Like you're, I'm more bitter than you are. What the heck is my problem? <laughs> you know, I was always told when I was in LeBaron and my father was the known pedophile, I was always told that I needed to forgive him. That he this was is a your good step, man. Your stepfather. My stepfather. Yeah. To, to forgive my stepfather. And the wives said it. My half brothers and sisters said it. And I, you know, like forgive him and put up with it. So once I left the church, I had to create my own definition of forgiveness. I was going to say, I want to ask you about this. Yeah. Because, like, I do, I have an understanding where it doesn't mean forgive, forget, absolve. Right. Put up with. But it does, it, there is. There is a um, logic to forgiveness as a way of uh, liberating yourself. That's exactly right. And I had to let go. I had to make the choice. And I'm still processing. No, I'm not completely over it. And it still affects me. I I still have a lot of the same symptoms that a lot of victims, adult victims of of childhood sexual abuse have. So I'm still processing. Well, insomnia, lower back pain, 
fear of early death. Uh, there are a few more, but those are the first three that I know that I <laughs> am dealing with and uh, that that a lot of people that have survived deal with. Really? That, yeah. Is it like lower back pain? Yeah. I guess is. like stress. Chronic lower back pain. Yeah. 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 I have that, but I mean, no excuse. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe a lot of people have that. Yeah. And you could say that any part of my life would have given me these fears and the, you know, insomnia and a little a little bit of PTSD or whatever it is that I have. How but do you learn to try? I guess you had a really loving, you had a loving mother, but she also betrayed you in some ways. You know, yeah. when you came to her and, and told her this stuff, she didn't immediately pack what up. What it and- really, what it really did for me as a young girl, it was devastating because I learned not to trust myself and I doubted myself so badly. I had so little self-esteem because I didn't think I mattered. You know, in this situation where I didn't have a voice, people weren't listening to me. Um, there was a point where other people in the town felt out, uh, other people in LeBaron found out about it, about the abuse, and and nobody stood up for me. They tried for a little while, but not really in the end. Um, he was still a member of the community, and still they called him Brother Lane. And Who are these people that do this to children? You know what? what? It happens all the time, and it's not about polygamy. It's about the mentality. Like it's, and it, I think it falls back on your point earlier about how these men, you know, the high and mighty man, get away with so much. But what? What? Like, what is it? Is it? Was he abused as a child? And he must have been. There's no way. I don't think you're born a child molester. Absolutely, it, it, it happens to you, and then you repeat the behavior. I think it does. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't just you. It was your brother as well. Yeah. That was kind of like the... That well, was and he continued once once we left. And that's exactly right. Once I found out that my disabled brother, my brother Luke, was being abused, uh, that was when I knew I had to go because I knew my sisters were next. And there was no way that I was going to let my sisters suffer the childhood that I had. Um, so I... I yeah. You I said, found out about it and I your, Have your sisters ever been like, thank you so much? Yes, for... they are always like that. Okay. Say, you saved them from quite a phase. <laughs> they're, yeah, well, they're in their 20s and 30s, and uh, they're pretty liberal and progressive. We're definitely Pacific Northwesterners as far as our <laughs> political beliefs. And, um, you know, we're, we're feminists, I would call us, um, uh, which I'm proud of. Good, yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. And uh, But my brother's very kind. I surround myself with really kind men now. And part of that is I've been able to the part of myself that I have profit. I've been through a lot of therapy as I was, well. I was going to say, have you done therapy? I have done. And I still go back to therapy once in a while. And I found a wonderful woman who's honest with me and will help me discover my patterns and how, how my past kind of creeps up into my life every now and again. And I'm finding that when I'm honest with myself about how badly it affected me, then I'm able to understand and deal with it a little better once I recognize it in myself. Or like, yeah, I mean, do you ever like, I mean, I'm guessing, but it's like, you can sometimes... And, and this is a—it's always a matter of scale. I mean, it can be a, a, a much less traumatic thing or a much less difficult thing in someone's past. But we, we can penalize ourselves for being upset. Right. You feel guilty about it, about yeah. being so angry and resentful. Like, just get over it. Or, yeah. Well, that's know. what I was told to do, and that pissed me off even more. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah. But I mean, do you ever say that to yourself, like years later, like I got to move on, and then, but it's still, it's still got to pull on you. Oh, I say it all the time. Like, why can't I let this go? Why can't I let this go? Why can't I let this go? Yeah. I've grown a lot and the therapy has really helped me and uh, just a lot of personal introspection and reflection about my life and writing has helped me a lot. Yeah. I was going to ask. I mean, it's a little bit uh, trite to say because like the whole cathartic, was it cathartic to write the memoir? Absolutely. But you did. Yeah. You got to, I mean, especially when you're digging back into your uh, childhood and one that was as difficult as this one, like 
It does give you perspective. It does. It it it, it gave me perspective. It really helped me great be grateful for my life to go back and remember what it was like back then. And I think for my sisters, I originally decided to start writing for them because they couldn't remember my mom. And I was like, well, I want them to know why we left Colonial LeBaron, where we're all from, and why we grew up without parents. And as I was writing, I realized that I needed to understand it for myself more than anything else. And the writing helped me do that. Yeah. yeah. What did they say when they read it? Oh, they all cried. <laughs> and my brothers that remember my mom cried. And Matt, my older brother, who's still in the religion, it helped him understand me better, too, about what I went through and everything. He, he's, he's a, is he practicing polygamy? And he's, He b- still believes that my dad was the prophet, and there are a lot of people in LeBaron that still do. The community is much more modern now than it was in the 70s and 80s, but uh, he still believes my dad was the prophet and that he's tried to live polygamy, and the wives keep leaving him, basically. <laughs> it's not working out. <laughs> but he has uh, one wife now who's a wonderful person, and she was raised in polygamy, too. She has eight kids, and he has 14 kids between two women. Yeah, I, I kind of I, that surprises me a little because uh, it's Matt. Matt. It mm-hmm. sounded like when he was a kid, like it sounded like he was the one who was getting out. He was breaking away. He was working in San Diego and at the age of fourteen and uh, resented my stepfather tremendously for just different types of abuse. Um, just basically being worked as a child and not getting paid and left and neglected in towns all over the country by himself with my stepbrothers and sisters uh, left to take care of themselves. But that's a different, you know, a whole different story in the book. Um, but so he had a lot of resentment for my stepfather for different reasons and actually came to work in San Diego with a lot of my half brothers. A lot of the LeBaron brothers, uh, worked in all over California in construction and that's what he did to get away. So he started working at 14 and was totally ready to leave the religion. And so when it was my time to go and to leave, I called him in California and he came down and picked my siblings and I up. So... Yeah. And you got across the border. We did. Yeah. Um, why did he go back? I, well, when we left, when I left to live with my grandmother and when I was raising my sisters, I stayed completely away because my stepfather was a pedophile and I didn't want him around my little sisters. Um, so I was more distant or I, I didn't, you know, I wasn't in contact you with were done. people. I was done. I was done. And it was hard because I missed my family and I was close to some of my friends and family there. It was a lonely time, but for me, there was just no way, you know, that I was going back. But my brother, Matt, was still working with all of our half-brothers, all the LeBaron brothers. So he never really left all the way. Right. And by the time he and my sister-in-law had been married for about 10 years, they the relationship was pretty rocky. And I think it was a temptation for him to go back into the religion so he could start dating other women so that he could find a better relationship. And... He started making good money in construction, and the church leaders at the time in LeBaron became his friends suddenly. And That's the way that a, usually works. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it is. And so he started to fall back into it, and he always remembered what my mom used to tell us about how important polygamy was and how important it was to have several children. So I think that guilt and that pull from my mother and the memory of her was a big part of his going back. And it's still there? LeBaron is still there? It's still there. It's much more modern. People have telephones and electricity. and. But it was polygamy still going on down there? It is, but not as common. Um, a lot, Most of my friends, and in fact, most of my generation, it, they're monogamous Mormons. They are. Um, have yeah. you been back down there? I've been back three times. You have? Yeah, and it was traumatic every time. It was so hard for what me. What happened to you? when like, You go down and like, maybe like, what do you do? I go down and I say hi to all my half-siblings, and I spend time with them, and they all 
preach to me. <laughs> what they all they, what don't they, understand they why I They want to bring you back? They well, bring... they'll start reading my dad's philosophy to me. And it's like, um, you know, you, you get the feeling, you still have that feeling. And now that I'm more of a modern woman and I don't feel like I need to be preached at, it's, it's hard for them to come in because you'll go into a man's house and he'll be served first and be, um, kind of tell you how he'll take sort of control of the conversation. I don't know quite how to explain it. Mansplaining. Mansplaining. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he just, you know, just, just taking over the conversation about my dad and, oh, I think it was because of this and this and this and that. And, you know, it's hard for me. Like, I don't want to get in an argument about it. Like, what am I supposed to say? I don't believe that. Um, so it's uncomfortable for me. It was traumatic. It's hard for me to go back to my childhood house after everything that happened there. Is it still there? It's torn down now, but the last time I was there seven years ago, it was still there. Yeah. So just in the last couple of years, it was torn down and there was another house built over it. Yeah. Does that mean, do you, does that make you feel? Gosh, the house was always crumbling. You know? Yeah. I was, gonna... <laughs> <laughs> I was I surprised it lasted. The job. <laughs> it's been 29 years since I left. I'm surprised the house, you know, stayed standing as long as it did. So, yeah. What do you, has there been any response from your family in the Baron to this book? Not yet. It just came out on the 5th. Okay. And so I have cousins that have read it. And they're, but a lot of them have left the church too. So they're more Christian, they're monogamous. Um, and a lot of them feel the same way I did because, you know, the girls all helped raise their brothers and sisters too. And it was a hard, it was hard to watch our moms go through that. I mean, it was just not an easy lifestyle. My sisters that are still in the church, I think that there's going to be, I think that with them. Some two-star reviews on uh, them. Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that all the one and two star reviews are from uh, either fundamentalists or <laughs> Mormons or LDS Mormons. Like, please stop calling it Mormonism. Um, but yeah, I, I think they're going to understand. I One thing that I know for sure is in conversations with them um, since I left is, why did you go? They don't understand, you know, why I left. And for them, life was carefree and fun and until they got married and started having kids. I mean, some of my half sisters who are still in polygamy have 14, 15 kids, literally. <sighs> yeah. And so for them, I'll, I'll even talk to them on the phone and they'll be like, you know, I don't really know what to talk to you about because you don't have kids, <laughs> you know, but I talk about travel and my supper club and, you know, <laughs> wine tasting. And so, you know, <laughs> life is just so different. And I think, I think the book is going to help some of them understand why I left and, hopefully that they'll understand that I still love them. And, and I tell them that you're always welcome. I'll see you in Denver. Cause I have a lot of family in Denver. I'll see you in Alaska, see you in California, come to my house in Oregon. You know, I'm happy to see them, but, uh, but LeBaron's a tough place for me to go back to. I can imagine. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's like reading your book. Uh, the fact that you were able to write it. Yeah automatically disqualifies any complaint I will ever have about how hard it is to write a book. The fact that you have been able to do this, that you're um, alive, not yeah. in the fetal position. <laughs> <laughs> it's an incredible, it's heroic. It's incredible. You. you should be really proud of yourself. And I'm, um, I'm Thank just, you. I'm pleased to get a chance to talk to you and I congratulate you and I wish you well. Thank you so much. Yeah. What an honor. All right, guys, there you have it. That is Ruth Warner. Go get her memoir, The Sound of Gravel, available now from Flatiron Books. Uh, it's a book you won't forget. Let me put it to you that way. It'll also shame you if you've ever complained about not being able to write a book. 
as I mentioned. You can find Ruth online at ruthwarner.com. She's on Facebook. She's also on Twitter, where her handle is at Ruth Warner. Thanks to the Eagles and uh, Glenn Fry for the transitional music. And uh, thanks to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total for the theme song. And the closing music. One and the same. Hey, if you get a chance, can you go rate and review this program uh, on iTunes? If you're a fan of the show and you have a minute, that would really help. Apparently that does something to the uh, rankings or something. I'm supposed to remember to ask you to do that, and I always forget. Because I don't like to ask you to do things. In fact, I'm regretting that I just asked you. Second-guessing myself. Nobody likes that. Don't ask me to do shit. I'm already listening to your podcast. I can hear what you're saying. I can hear what you're thinking. I'm inside your head. Let me go, let me tell you something else to do. <laughs> Don't forget to get the app. This podcast, the other people with Brad Listy podcast has its own app. The app is free. So I'm telling you to get a free thing. It's available wherever you get your apps. The other people app. It's the best way to listen. And uh, if you want to, you can sign up for premium right there within the app. That gets you access to everything, all uh, almost 400 episodes and counting. You get f- uh, 50 for free, the most recent 50 for free, and then if you want the rest, if you want the other 350 episodes, if you want to be able to listen to all of it, just sign up for premium right there within the app. It's 75 cents a month, as cheap as 75 cents a month. That's a deal. If you want to email me to complain about me asking you to do things, the address is letters at otherppl.com. If you want to criticize me, if you want to uh, weigh in, lambaste me, go ahead and do it. Letters at otherppl.com. I also have a weird Glenn Fry memory involving the video for Smuggler's Blues, back when music videos were a thing in a mainstream way. It's a really, I'm sure if you, I haven't watched it. I'm going to go watch it after this is over. There's something really like corny about that song, but I love it. About drug smuggling. You know what I'm talking about? Smuggler's Blues. Smuggler's <laughs> I can't do it. It's the way he sings Smuggler's Blues. Smuggler's. You know what I'm talking about. Those of you out there. Who are as white as I am. I think maybe like liking Glenn Fry is, is just it's the whitest thing you could ever do. I'm a Caucasian man. From a redneck Midwestern state. I'm sorry. Please remember that Leo Tolstoy was abusive to his servants and that Marcel Proust constantly wheezed. Thanks again to Ruth Warner. Go get The Sound of Gravel. Thanks to Flatiron Books. Uh, Check out the Nervous Breakdown Book Club when you get a chance over at thenervousbreakdown.com. And uh, I guess I'll let uh, Glenn Fry and the Eagles close it out. Smuggler's Blues. Desperado. Actually, you know what? I think I... uh, I want to play a little bit of Desperado to close it out. Even though it's, uh, this is Glenn Fry on uh, piano, but uh, Don Henley on vocals. 
but the piano, it feels almost as iconic as the vocals. It's a good song. to 